0: What is the church? What should it look like? And what has it been called to do? In this series on the foundation and future of Cornerstone, we answer these questions and seek to carve out a biblical path forward for being the church in Southampton Roads. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Second Chronicles 20, No, it's a weird place to begin, but I was reading in this passage this week, just on my own personal reading, and the Lord really made something stand out to me, and I want to share it with you this morning. Let's read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 1 says, that after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Mianites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold... They are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that your word is so powerful, how it speaks to us. It, it opens our eyes. It removes the blinders in which we often seem to be walking around in life. It, it shows us who we really are, and it shows us, most importantly, you because ultimately that is eternal life, that we would know you, the true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so our desire today, as every Sunday, is to know you, to to come together around your word and just try to understand who you are and what you're doing in this world and what our part is in that. And, And we've been taking these weeks, working through these topics, and we know it's been different. And as I've already confessed, we feel a little guilty about it in some ways. But We believe it is so critically important that we have a right understanding of what you are doing in the world through your church, and then specifically through this church, that this is an important time. And so I come again today, and I ask what I often do, that you will take my feeble, feeble words, and that you will use them to draw our hearts together around you. I am nothing. You are everything. And so Help us to walk out of here this morning with an enlarged understanding of the church and of, the, of how we go about being the church and being on mission for you in this area where you have placed us. Give us a, a, a clear vision of that, we ask, Lord, because we desperately need it. And then empower us to do what it is you have called us to do. We ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen. As I said, this uh, passage... passage excuse me, that we just read really stood out to me this week. In light of everything that we've been talking about now over the past several Sundays uh, here at Cornerstone, Jehoshaphat, as you see in the passage, has a real problem here in that he is looking at a situation that is clearly, clearly too big for him. There is a huge army of Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites who are all coming up against Jerusalem, against Judah, to fight against it and conquer it. And we're not given a, a number of how many people are in this army uh, anywhere in the text. But if you look down at verse 25, just very quickly, you will see that after God destroys this army for Judah, Judah doesn't fight. But after God destroys this army for Judah, it takes Judah, the people of Judah, not like one guy, not Judah, not Caleb and Carmen's kid, takes Judah, the people, hey, I got ahead. Judah, the people, Three whole days just to collect the spoil from the dead soldiers. So whatever army, whatever size this is, it's it's big. It's really, really big. And if we go back now to this portion uh, that we read here just a moment ago, when Jehoshaphat and his servants see this and hear about this huge army that's coming to them, they are afraid, and rightly so. They recognize right off the bat that this is something that is far too big for them, far too, uh, too huge and outside of their realm to even begin to handle. And so they do the only thing that they can do, and that is seek the Lord. That's it. That's, that's the only option. And when the text says here in verse 3 that Jehoshaphat set his face, you see that, that phrase there, he set his face to seek the Lord, that's a, a way of saying that he made a, a decision that he comes to a point where he he just makes this decision, I'm going to set my face, this is the path, it's the one we're going to follow, we're going to seek the Lord. And so he proclaims a fast throughout all Judah, and you see they all come together from all their cities to, to uh, seek the help of the Lord. And Jehoshaphat, as their leader then, stands before them, before the house of the Lord, and he begins to pray on their behalf. And I just want to point out, three features of this prayer for you to think about by way of introduction this morning. First, notice the recognition of God's sovereignty in the affairs of men in the prayer. I mean, you see it in verse six, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Verse seven, did you not our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel? He's recognizing that God has a plan for this world and for his people, and that he is sovereign over that plan. You're you're over every nation. There is no kingdom on this earth that you are not in control of. Everything that happens with, with us and around us is in your sovereign hands. So since this world is his and God is sovereign in it, Jehoshaphat in his prayer just simply acknowledges that fact. Second, notice that they unashamedly, Ask God to intervene on their behalf. You see it in verse 11. Behold, they, these Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? They're they're saying to him, God, since we are your people and since this is your plan, you gave this to us, will you not help us? They're not questioning him. I hope you understand. There's no sense in which you should read that in a negative light as if they're being faithless in that question. They're not. They're just simply coming and pleading, God, we need your help. We we can't do this. We We need you to help us. And the reason they're doing that is because, third, notice that the magnitude of the situation has brought them to humility before the Lord. And this is really clear in verse 12. Here at the end of verse 12, he says, for we are powerless, against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And they look at this huge army that's that's coming against them, and they look at themselves, and they realize there's nothing. Nothing that they can do. It's not just simply that it's going to be really hard. I mean, that would be one thing if it was just really hard. God, we need your help to do this thing that's really hard. So now what he says, we're powerless against this great horde. There is nothing we can do. In fact, it's even worse than that. It's not even that there's nothing that they can do. They don't even know what to do. (laughs) It's not like they know what to do and they're just not doing it or they think it's gonna be hard and they need help to get it done. They They don't have a clue. They have no idea what to do. And I love, love, love. This is what jumped out at me this week. Love the last sentence here in verse 12. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't have a motto at Cornerstone. This should probably be it, okay? It should definitely be my personal motto because I don't ever know what to do. Um, we, we should always see ourselves in such a light that we recognize in humility, genuine humility before God that we don't know what we're doing. Don't know what I'm doing as a husband. I don't know what I'm doing as a father. I don't know what I'm doing as a man. I don't know what I'm doing as a pastor. i mean, like, you pick any realm of life and I can say to you honestly, I don't know what to do. But my eyes should be on the Lord, seeking his help. We should be dependent on the Lord, needing the Lord, because what is in front of us in any realm of life we think about is far, far too big for us, too much for us. We need him. Well, those were very, very comforting words to me this week. They're, they're true words, even, I would say. If you think about the gospel and what, what the church is all about, what we are telling people is there's nothing they can do. There's nothing you can do. Your eyes have to be on the Lord. It's Jesus. Jesus does it or it's nothing. That, that is the message of the gospel in a, in a different way, that God is sovereign in the affairs of men, that we can and should humbly and unashamedly seek him and his help in all things, salvation, life, ministry, it doesn't matter. Everything is dependent on God. And I think that those thoughts need to stay at the forefront of our thinking as we talk through this Foundation and Future of Cornerstone series. I hope that it has been in your heart and mind. Last week, we began to talk about ministry strategy, and I began by saying at the very beginning of that sermon that there is no such thing as a biblical ministry strategy. In other words, there's no chapter and verse that I can ask you to turn to where we are going to walk through step-by-step the the blueprint that Jesus has laid out for how ministry and how church is supposed to to be done, so it it doesn't exist. And so when we talk about ministry strategies, we want to be very, very careful that we don't talk about these right, like this is the right ministry strategy. This is it. I'm going I'm to enlighten you all, okay, with the right, the right one. That's not the right way to talk about it. What we see in the New Testament and what we see just around us is that as churches and individuals are being faithful to Christ and the scriptures, there are multiple strategies and multiple ways that God can use all with his blessing, because this is his. We, we can't do anything. Our eyes are on you. And as God uses those efforts of ours, well, that's, that brings him glory. The church has been given a great deal of flexibility in how it carries out this mission that we have received from God in the time and place that we he has put us. And so what I did last Sunday and what I'm going to do again today is not to give you what we think is the absolute right, only possible way that ministry can ever be done here at Cornerstone. That, that's, that's not the case at all. We're coming to you, as I said last week, hopefully, with a very humble, well-reasoned, well-thought-out, well-prayed-over ministry model that we think would be right and good, not be really right, good for us to use to lead us into the future. And that model that I introduced to you last time, really at the very end, was called the city-parish model. Now, it's been called that by some, but I should point out that if you Google that, and how many of you did? Anybody? Excellent, nobody. Um, if you do Google it, I'll go ahead and tell you what you're going to find. You're going to find about five hits, okay? It's not, this isn't like some, no one's writing books on this. There's not websites devoted to this thing. It's, it's hardly really even a model. It's probably more just of an approach, Uh, uh, something that uh, a way some churches have found very helpful to approach ministry. So call it whatever you want. I don't care. This is what I'm calling it. And as I explained to you last Sunday, it's not really a new model of ministry as compared to those other ones that we looked at last time. It's really just a variation or a a hybrid model between some of the better points of, of the other ones. At least that's what it's attempting to be. If you weren't here or you don't remember the other four models that we looked at last time, I will very quickly review them for you and i was specifically asked i think by jordan or chris i don't remember which one to put the pictures back up here because ed wasn't here to see his photo last week so ed here you go four other models number one was the status quo model remember this one and the goal of this model is what what maintain status quo no change no change whatsoever. So they build a, a theological, philosophical, practical, relational wall around themselves so that everything inside stays exactly like it is and we don't have any any uh, interference from the outside. You don't want new people coming in, changing things. You don't want to change with whatever is going on around us. And while it is true that there is no right biblical model of ministry, it is equally true that there is one unbiblical model of ministry, and this is it, okay? Because it goes against the very nature of what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about change. I hope you get that. It's about taking people who were enemies and changing them into sons. Jesus wants change. He wants people forgiven. He wants multitudes gathered to himself. He wants change, and this model doesn't, and as such, it's Wrong, okay? So this is the one wrong model. No right ones, but definitely, definitely one wrong one. This is it. There's nothing of value for us here except to recognize it. Two, I showed you what I call the bigger is better model. And in the bigger is better model, the goal is to grow as one church in one location all with with one teacher. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to attract. You're trying to attract people from wherever they are all around the area to your to your one spot, because bigger is better. Bigger buildings, bigger attendances, bigger numbers, bigger whatever else, okay? And, and one of the key words there, a word that should have stood out to you, was the word attract. There are right ways to attract, and there are wrong ways to attract, okay? Unfortunately, it seems to us, many churches who pursue this model choose wrong ways to attract, and next thing you know, they're giving away you know iPods every Sunday to some lucky visitor, and you know... you. You make decisions about what you want to do and not do in ministry and why you want people to come to your, to your gathering or a Sunday service or not. We're just not a big fan of that, so take that or leave it. Three, here you go, ahead. Church planning model. See, I told you. I tried to describe it to him. That was Pastor Tim's, I believe, final service. Oh, I got lots of other pictures in that, but I like that one the best. I like that one the best. In the church planning model, the goal is to grow as multiple churches in multiple locations with, obviously, then multiple teachers. So you've got Cornerstone down there, and you've got Cobbleface over there, and Table Saws up there, and we're all different churches. And again, if you don't get those jokes, sorry, those are all inside jokes. So uh, all different churches, all in in multiple areas, all with multiple teachers. Each church is typically in this model. What we say is independent and autonomous. Do you understand those terms? Because I want you to understand them. By saying independent, we mean they're not dependent on some other church or group or whatever else. They're, they're on their own. They're doing their own thing. By autonomous, you're kind of reemphasizing the same point, but saying they get to govern themselves, that nobody's telling them what to do or how to do things. They get to make their own choices. That's typically, typically, not always, but typically what's in view in this model, and it's one that we considered. Number four, we looked at the multi-site model. I didn't give you the other stuff this time. Yeah, so you can laugh at that one too. Multi-site model. The goal is to grow as one church in multiple locations, but yet still with just one teacher, typically speaking. And so, all three in this silly little example, all three of these locations are cornerstone. It's one church just happening to meeting and be meeting in three different places, but all with one absolutely beautiful teacher. Please don't laugh again. Um, uh, one teacher who has no hair in this picture. So uh, these, were the, these were the models that I showed to you, and I'm gonna, I am want to sh- explain them again in one little different way because I think in pictures. I like pictures. I draw all the time when I am thinking. You'd be surprised how much scrap paper I go through in a typical week. But some of you are like data people. You like graphs and charts and stuff like that. So here you go. Here's the same information in a different format, just to make sure, I want you to really get it, what these things are and what the differences are between them, so on the left, you've got the four models, you've got four columns after that, are they interested in growth, how many churches are we talking about, how many locations, how many teachers, and you see how they kind of, they differ in different ways, so a status quo church doesn't want to grow, one church, one location, one teacher, The, the bigger is better model, it's really almost the same thing except that they do want to grow. That's the, that's the only difference. One church, one location, one teacher. You see the church planning model, the multi-site, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of these models are taking the same questions and same points and just arranging them a little bit differently, but that does have a a big impact on how they do church. How they do ministry and so these things. Are important. Well, the city parish model is just another variation on these same points. Instead of trying to draw everyone into one location like the bigger is better model, this model sees value in trying to reach people where they are. Still, it's just one church. They're not planning new churches this time. It's just one church that meets in multiple places on Sundays when they gather to worship. Which, remember why we've said, talked about this? Because is the church Sunday? Answer that right, or I'm going to be angry. Okay, is the church Sunday? Thank you. The church isn't Sunday. So they're they're saying, well, it doesn't matter about the Sunday event, so we're going to gather in multiple places. So Cornerstone gathers here, and they gather there, and they gather there. In this little example, three locations, one church. But unlike the multi-site model, it's not built around one man. And so you have multiple teachers, multiple elders who lead the body, who just happen to be teaching in different places. So I might teach here, and Chris teaches there, and Ed is having fun up in Hilltop. And, you know, the city, in the city parish model, the goal is to grow as one church, multiple locations, one teacher. Here's the graph again, okay, just to add that one to it so you can, again, compare the differences between all these different models. Now, Having introduced all of that to you last week, and that was all I did, longest sermon I ever preached, all introduction to a concept only, having introduced all of that to you, we know that you have a lot of questions, okay? Some of them are very practical questions, very good ones at that. You know, what will this look like for, you know, children's ministries? How would that affect or change what we do there? Or, or where would we go first? We had that happen, question come up a few times. Like, what are you guys thinking? Where do you want to go for the first location? Or, or, you know, what would that mean for, uh, or who would be the other main teachers? Who's going to be uh, up front? Whose faces are you going to be able to make fun of in the future? Those kinds of questions. Very practical, practical questions. And those are excellent questions many of which we have thought about and talked about ourselves, so you're thinking just like we are, which is probably scary. Others of them are very strategic, high-level questions that you've been asking, Uh, questions like, are we sure this is the best model? Have we really done our due diligence to check everything and make sure it all works out just like it's supposed to? Have we really considered all the pros and cons? Are there other factors that need to be considered again? Let me commend you for thinking so actively about this. I know our community group took our time this week just to talk about these things. I heard that was happening in other places as well, and I heard some of the feedback from that. Those are all great questions. And it is because of those questions that 2 Chronicles 20 stood out to me so so strongly this week. Because when I start thinking through ministry strategy, particularly the one that we've talked about here now for the last uh, little bit, all the stuff that goes with it, all the questions, all the details, I'll be honest with you, very quickly, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Like Very, very quickly, I'm overwhelmed. But I would also say it's not just the city parish model that does that to me. I don't care what model you pick. If you have no model at all, it's very easy to be overwhelmed in ministry in any sense as you begin to realize what God has called us to be pursuing. And so we could pick any of them, and it would still be too much. But, but thankfully, thankfully, we serve a God who is sovereign in the affairs of men. And we serve a God to whom we can unashamedly come and ask for help. We serve a God who says, even though you're powerless to do what it is I've called you to do, which is to make people like Jesus, even though you're powerless, if your eyes are on me, I, I, can, I can do this. The Spirit has to do it. And so my heart echoes the words of that last sentence there in verse 12. We don't know what to do. We admit it up front. We don't know what to do. That gives you great confidence, right? We don't know what to do but our eyes are on the Lord and all of these things. And it's that sentiment, that truth that puts all of our thinking about ministry strategies in their proper place. The fact of the matter is get ready for this bombshell. The fact of the matter is that ministry strategy doesn't really matter. And now, if you're thinking you should be saying to yourself, What? (laughs) You just took the longest sermon you've ever preached and the whole beginning of this message where you've done nothing but talk about ministry strategy and now, now, you're going to tell us that it doesn't really matter? Yep. That is exactly what I'm going to tell you at exactly this point because now is the point you need to hear it. It doesn't really matter because in and of ourselves we cannot do anything in and of ourselves i don't care what strategy you pick you and i can do nothing john 15:5 i am the vine you are the branches apart from me what can you do nothing We can talk all day about strategies, and there is certainly benefit to that. I have not wasted your time. But we have to remember at this point, at this moment, that all the strategies we'll ever pick come to nothing if Jesus isn't in it. Do you understand that? Do you have that that truth emblazoned across your your heart and mind and eyes that that only the Spirit can, can make people like Jesus, whatever strategy you and I, foolish, weak, sinful people, choose? This is the Spirit's work. And so what this teaches me is that when you get right down to it, that that ministry strategies in and of themselves, they don't really matter. And we need to understand them correctly if we're going to talk about them any further at all. You see, the strategies we choose don't matter in and of themselves. They don't accomplish anything. But the reason why they're important is because they reflect a deeper theological and philosophical understanding of what the church really is. That's why it matters. That's why it's important to talk about it and think about it. It's not that the strategies are going to accomplish anything of themselves. They just, strategies don't do that. The Spirit does that. But what the strategies show, what they reflect, is a deeper theological and philosophical understanding of what the church really is is and this is very very important for you to understand this is why we had to lay such a strong foundation first because if we don't have a a strong foundation upon which we can build our strategy then we will build that strategy on something far less valuable and that was the concern you know maybe you'll base your decisions on ministry strategy strategy just on personal preference well, I like this or I don't like that or I wish we looked like this or I wish we looked like that. These aren't necessarily wrong to to feel or think, but they are certainly not good things to build a strategy on. I will tell you that because feelings change and desires change and that's not a firm foundation. Nor can you simply build your decisions on ministry strategy around a purely logical exercise in pros and cons. Now, I think pros and cons are important to think about. It's good to critique things and think through them carefully. I hope you saw that last week. But in the end, if this ministry belongs to Jesus, it's not simply about our, our intelligence and our ability to make good choices based on a number of factors upon which we attach scores. Well, this one scored a 97, so we're going with the 97 because it's better than the 94. No, that, that's not a good, uh, good strategy to build it on either. Our strategies should be built on the foundation of our theology. Our strategies should be putting into practice, in a, in a very practical way, our understanding of what the church really is. That, that is a good reason to have a strategy. Not because we like it or because it meets certain criteria in our minds, but but because it fleshes out what we already believe to be true about the church. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning, and I don't have any more slides, and if you want to know why, it's because all of this last part of this message is new since yesterday afternoon, okay? (laughs) Nothing like a last-second change. Um, I want to take the rest of our time this morning just to walk through this and process this with you so you can see that this model isn't merely a, a, an expression of, of, the four, of the four of us, the four elders, four pastors of our desires. Nor is it simply a, 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 an expression of our own uh, intelligence. Because believe me, you would not want to see that. We want you to see that this strategy is really a natural outworking, natural Outworking of the foundation that we have laid out for you in terms of our understanding of the church. Okay, do you understand what we're doing? Okay, here we go. If you really believe what we've been talking about for the past six weeks, that the church is not a building, an event, or a tradition, if you really believe that the church is the people that God has redeemed through the blood of Jesus that he now calls to work with all of the energy he gives them to proclaim Christ to everyone so that they can present everyone back to him perfect in Christ Jesus. If you really believe that, then we think it will force you, drive you to see the church and understand the church in certain ways, and those ways will guide your strategy. I'm going to give you five things that should drive our thinking about strategy in relation to this understanding of the church. If you really buy into our foundation, here we go. Number one, if you really buy into it, it will force you to see the church as growing bottom up, not top down. It'll force you to see the church as growing bottom up, not top down. What does that mean? It means that Jesus redeems people, souls, not organizations. It means for us that we cannot impose a strategy on the Spirit's work, that all we can do is to be faithful to work with all of the energy that God gives us so that we can present people perfect to Christ, that, Lord willing, we can be faithful. But what we're suggesting to you is not some grand top-down scheme or design that we're just trying to drop over all that we're doing here, it'll lead us to a certain end. No. You see, because of how we view the church as being a people redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we recognize up front that all any of us in this room can do is be faithful to that purpose. That's it. We can be faithful. We don't know what to do. (laughs) Our eyes are on the Lord. That doesn't mean we can't plan but it does mean that every single one of our plans are dependent on Him. Every single one of them. So, to make this practical for you, because you're probably going, I don't get it. Let me try to help. Make it practical for you. That means we haven't chosen like a second location already that we're already trying to target towards. That would be a very top down way. Like, we're going to come to this and here's the battle plan. Da, da, da. Now let's all go do the battle plan. No, no. We think the church grows bottom up. not not top down. So we in faith believe that the spirit is going to continue drawing people to himself. And that as he does that, we're going to see areas, pockets, just naturally beginning to form where the spirit is working, where the gospel is going forth. People are getting saved. Believers are coming together. And we're all going to be sitting back watching this going, wow, there's like a hundred people over there. They should just meet together. It's not a, a top-down, like, we're going there. It's saying, where is the Spirit working? What's happening in and around us? How do we recognize this and go in line with what the Spirit is doing? We believe in faith, I say this with all my heart, that God makes those things clear and that the Spirit has to drive those things, not ours. We don't want a, a top-down approach to this thing. We want to let the Spirit work, and we want to go along with Him. We believe He's building His church bottom-up, Not top down. It's because he redeems people, not organizations. And so we have to take that approach. And the the city parish model, it's very much built on that concept of looking to see how the Spirit works and then going along with it. Number two, if you really buy into our foundation, it will force you to always remember that the church is many and yet one. That the church is many and yet one. That there is by necessity a constant duality in how we understand the church, that we are many on one hand and yet one on the other. In that sense, I hope I don't get in trouble by saying this, in that sense, it reflects the very nature of God himself, if you think about it. God is trinity and yet unity. He is the three in one. Okay, well, we're not God, I get that, so don't only take that analogy so far. Uh, but, But the church by its very nature, reflects that same concept, that he has chosen to make us a body, not a, a single Lone Ranger kind of thing, that we are many in one. And you see that at, at multiple levels here, that, that we have individual believers, right? Many who in the various communities where they live gather together during the week. We call those what? Community groups. We call them community groups for a reason. It's because they're there to reach their communities, So they gather together as one in those groups. And then on Sunday, guess what happens? All those groups gather together. So here you are now, all of you together, many, and yet one, one church, one place on Sunday. It's just the nature of the church. Even now, even right now, there are many churches gathering all around this city, all around this country, all around this world who are together, one body in Christ. To, to only focus on, on the, the many part and, and ignore the oneness, you, you get a wrong view of the church. To only focus on the oneness and, and ignore the manyness of the church, again, you end up with a wrong view. You always have to keep these things in balance. There are certain things, and I think this is by God's design, there are certain things that we do that are certainly better together, are they not? Softball would be really boring by yourself, okay? Golf tournaments, you could always win. It'd be wonderful. Okay, those are some dumb examples. There's some things that are better together. There are other things that are better on the smaller scale. This is not accidental. And so whatever strategy we choose needs to, to, to do something with that. And we think the city parish model does it. It's an attempt to do both as best we can, the emphasizing of the togetherness and the, the recognizing the effectiveness of the smaller settings as well. Number three, if you really buy into our foundation it will force you to see the church as being led by multiple men who are supposed to point others to Christ, not replace him. It's supposed to be led by multiple men who are supposed to point others to Christ, not replace him. And we really haven't talked much about leadership so far in the series to date. I just haven't opened that, uh, that discussion with us yet. Not for any particular reason. It just didn't come up, but it's coming up now. We can't think about any of these things apart from understanding leadership. We believe that for the safety of the church and for the sanity of the people who are entrusted with its care, okay, both ways there, that God has chosen to work through multiple men in leading the church. Okay? We already function like that. This is, this is absolutely nothing new to us. We had an elder meeting yesterday and it was beautiful. We were in the building here and we're sitting over there and the four of us are, are praying together, talking together. No one's dominating the discussion or taking all the points and it's all together as one, multiple men leading the church. Four weak, sinful, foolish men that are trying their best as God enables them to do what God has for us to do. The leadership of the church has been entrusted to multiple men who are supposed to lead, teach, and equip people to become more like Jesus, not to replace him. And see, that's one of the biggest concerns in many of those other models is we feel there's a real sense in which somebody seems to be replacing Christ at some point in there. It's all about us. It's all about me. No, no. By having multiple men lead, we show in a very practical way, a very natural way, that the church isn't about any one guy, one person. It's only about one man, and that's the God-man, Jesus. Number four, if you really buy into our foundation, it will force you to see the church as being a collection of ministers, not members. And this is important. You see, because the church is the people, right? The people down here that means our purpose that we've shown you is not organizational it's not top down it's it's individual it's bottom up i hope you have gotten that the idea along the way that the purpose there in colossians 1 29 that's paul's it's it's an individual's purpose it's your purpose it's my purpose we are all individually told to work with all of the energy that God gives us to proclaim Christ to everyone so that we can present everyone to him perfect in Jesus. The reason it is our goal together is because it is our goal separately. Does that make sense? We, we think about it bottom up. So as a follower of Jesus, your life purpose is to be a minister, not just a member. Your life purpose is to be a missionary wherever it is that God has placed you. You have a responsibility. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that you and I are ambassadors for Jesus, that we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, that God is in this world reconciling people to himself through Jesus. We're ministers together and so the church then, as a collection of ministers entrusted with the ministry of the gospel, needs to begin seeing itself as missionaries spread out in every community we find ourselves in. Whatever context you live, work, go to school, anything in, you're a missionary. You are responsible to be proclaiming Jesus with all the energy that God gives you so you can see those people be made perfect in him. If we're doing that faithfully, then guess what? That city parish model, it just happens. That's what we think, what we've seen in others. That as as people are are coming to Christ and they're learning about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that, that it starts to spread all over. Here's a group, here's a group, here's a group. Believers are growing here. Unbelievers are getting saved there. How do we process that? What do we do with it? We recognize that this isn't something you just... You don't like, we're not going to start a program and everybody sign up and we'll give you a little name tag and you're going to go do something. That's not how it works. This is what we're supposed to be doing naturally anyway, as followers of Jesus, as his ministers. And if we're doing it, then we're confident this kind of thing will just happen. Number five, if you really buy into our foundation, then it will force you to recognize that the church grows uniquely in each time and place as the Spirit directs, not uniformly. And you say, what? Okay, well, these people that Jesus, that he's redeeming to himself, these churches that he's gathering to gather to himself, they're all unique. They're they're unique in time. I mean, what would Cornerstone look like if it was 50 years prior, if it was 1963? It would look really different, wouldn't it? What if it was 1863? Cornerstone would look very different. They're unique in time. Each time, each era that God uh, operates in has unique features to it. They're unique in place. Cornerstone would be very different if we were in downtown Los Angeles, would it not? It would also be very different if we were in Smallville, Kansas. See, the the place that God has put us is very, very important to keep in mind. That's why we talk with you about it. It's one of the unique features that makes us who we are. And then, number three, each church is unique in the people that God has gathered together. Because there are certain things that are going to be true about us in this room that won't be true about another church just down the road. Because Jesus has gathered certain people here with certain abilities and certain desires and certain gifts that he then uses together. And so because he's made us all different, guess what? The church is going to be different as a result. And so the church as a whole is unique to the time, place, and people that it's connected to, and that is okay. In fact, we think it's good. We're not trying to live and act like people did 100 years ago. (laughs) We're not trying to live and act like any other church in any other place. And we are definitely, definitely not trying to make everyone perfect in us. To look like us, think like us, and talk like us. If We're trying to reach people where they are. We need to be doing it to make them look like Jesus. And again, that's why we like the city parish model. It just seemed like a natural outflow of our foundation. We're not, we're not trying to make them like us. <laughs> I don't want them to be like us. I want them to be way better than that. I, I want them to be perfect in Jesus. So we don't go around proclaiming cornerstone. We're proclaiming Christ. And we think that as we do that throughout Hampton Roads, it's going to look different. What would a church in Great Neck look like as compared to a church in Hickory? You know, in Great Neck, you probably need an organ, right? Just to pick a dumb example. So no, none of this stuff. Get rid of all this. We'll have an organ over there. Older population. It's just going to be different. In, in Hickory, you might need a banjo. I don't know. No, no offense, all you Hickory folks. Uh, if it's in Ghent, it's going to need like you know some mood lighting and some weird guy with a tambourine. Sorry, Bob. Um, those things don't matter. What matters is that our doctrine is the same, our 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 vision is the same, our purpose is the same. Those foundation pieces, those don't change. I don't care what setting you're in and who you're ministering to, but everything else, who cares? <laughs> That Jesus builds his church in ways that are unique to the times and places that he, he operates in. It's not all uniform, and we shouldn't seek that either. We just need to recognize how the Lord is working. It's like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, we want to be all things to all people so that by all means we might be used to save some. We think the city parish model works with that. And so as we think about and talk about the future, and about all these ministry models and all this stuff, we don't want to be self-focused, nor do we want to just be simply pragmatic in our thinking. In fact, we don't, we don't want to talk about strategy from those perspectives of, of personal emotions or exercises in logic. We want our strategy to be as focused on Jesus as is everything else in our foundation. The foundation must dictate the strategy. Otherwise, the strategy will change the foundation. That is a very important thing for us to understand at this moment. And so when I say to you that we have chosen the city parish model, and that's why we're presenting it to you, I, I think we may, I may, I won't blame the guys, I, I have probably communicated something to you that I don't really mean. We, we never, ever, ever set out to research ministry models so that we could pick one, ever. You will not find a single email in my inbox where we were talking about the need to pick a strategy. You will not find a single meeting minute where it ever came up as something that we should probably work on someday and where we should like, you know, present some papers to one another about all the different options and list out all the pros and cons and all that stuff. None of it ever existed. I don't think we actually ever set out really to start a strategy conversation at all. It just kind of happened. Just as we were starting to understand our purpose, which we did set out to understand, As we were trying to understand our purpose, what does that mean? And then Colossians 1, 28 and 29 came on the scene and we're like, yes, yes, that's it. We proclaim Jesus working with all the energy. So we want to present people perfect in Christ. Yes. How? How do we do that? If we're responsible, we got to, you know, it was just natural. It just happened. In fact, just, I'll tell you a personal story. I didn't even know it had a name, (laughs) I'm at lunch one day with one of my local pastor friends, Jason Roberts, over at Cross Current. We were up at the Linhaven Panera, and it's like over a year ago now, and we're just sitting there, and we're just talking about ministry, okay? just Sometimes it's nice to get with people who know what you do and do the same thing and talk, right? You guys get that. So he and I were just talking, and he started telling me about this stuff they're working on. They were going to start another location out in College Park, and they're going to send uh, one of their elders over there, Chris Hasenpoor, and he was going to lead it, but they're all going to be one church, and as he's talking, I'm My mouth is like dropping open and food is falling out the side now because we have been thinking about all the same stuff. And Jason and I had never talked about this once. And I'm like, we're, we're thinking all the same things. And they didn't pick college park just for an interesting side note to prove, show a point, not prove it, but to illustrate a point. They didn't pick College Park because they had a real burden for College Park. College Park is the intersection between Military and Indian River. Okay, for those of you who don't know that part of town, um, that's the College Park area. They didn't pick it because they had a real strong burden for College Park. They picked it because they had about 100 people that the Spirit had drawn together all right around that area. And they were all driving out to Hilltop. And they're like, why? Let's, the Spirit's already done it. The church is there. We're not planning a church. We're not doing anything. The church is already there. We just give them a place to meet. <laughs> it's easy. There was no thought to it. No thought or strategy needed. It's just, what did the spirit do? Let's just recognize it. So that was why they picked it. But I'm, I'm, my mouth is dropping open now because I'm thinking, how did you know what we were thinking? And he, I, I told him, like, we're thinking the exact same thing. And they're way further along than we were in the process. And it was like an, it was one of those amazing conversations. I, I walked out of there and I got on the phone. I remember this so clearly. And I called Jamie. I'm like, you will never believe. What, what Jason and, and the guys over at Crosskern are doing. They're doing the same thing that we're doing. He told me it's called the City Parish Model. It's the first time I'd ever heard that word, ever. And he even told me, I hear some other churches that are doing it. I went home, I'm like Googling, I'm like, wow, look at all this. I was I was blown away that it had a name. They had the same things happening there that we had here. That just naturally, as as we were understanding what it means to be the church, certain Realities just they just seem to make sense. Certain ways of doing things just seem to pop out to them and to us, and so it was comforting to me, because one, if if we're stupid, at least we're not stupid alone, okay? Because that always makes you feel better in life. But on another sense, it was comforting that another church with a very similar understanding of what the church is it, what the church is had looked at this area and all the things we've talked about and came to the same conclusions. It was just natural for them as well. Now, how do we do this or wh- why did i i want to share this with you i wanted to share this with you because i am first and foremost concerned about our hearts i don't care about strategies i care about our hearts the ed and chris and jordan and i we're going to give an account for your souls not our, not our strategies okay you got that we're we're concerned about your hearts and our hearts as well and if at any point in this conversation we begin to take our eyes off of the purpose and to begin to put it on strategies and practical things which are all good and have their place, we have lost our way already. I don't think that's happened, but I'm one of, I, we were concerned about it. I was concerned about it and wanted to address it with you. Our purpose is to be... Our, excuse me, what should be on our hearts is our purpose. And so as our focus is kept on Jesus and his mission and our dependence is kept on the spirit and our lives really reflect the true, our true status as ministers of the gospel, it will keep our hearts focused on all the right things and off of all the wrong ones. And as we recognize that we don't know what to do, we're honest about it. That We're just a group of sinners. There's no one special in here. Sorry for the like two of you who thought you were. There, we're just ministers, all of us, together, every single one of you. If I, could, if I had the time or the memory, I would go around and, and name every one of you by name right now, just to remind you that it's not about four guys and all the rest. We are ministers together. We have been given a purpose individually. Jesus is gathering his church in Hampton Roads. And we will be a part of that because we're gonna work with all the energy he gives us to do so, okay? Let's guard our hearts and all those things.